Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest today is Isabel Sawhill, a senior fellow in economic studies here at Brookings. Her research spans many economic and social issues, and her focus over the past decade has been on children and families. She helped found the Campaign to Prevent Unplanned Pregnancy and was a co-director of the Center on Children and Families. On today's show, I ask her about her research on work, family, and education. Also in today's show, a new installment of our Metro Lens segment featuring Alan Berube from the Metropolitan Policy Program, talking about older industrial cities. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Belle, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you, Fred. It's been too long. It's been about four years since I had you on here talking about your book, Generation Unbound, which we can talk about in a moment. And in that research that you've done with Ron Haskins and others, you argued that if we want to reduce poverty and improve opportunity in America, we should focus on education, work, and family. And those three things you've called, and Ron has called, the success sequence. So what is the success sequence and why those three elements? So the success sequence says the following. If you get a good education, at least graduate from high school. Of course, nowadays you need more than that. Secondly, if you work full time. And thirdly, if you wait to have children until you're in a committed relationship, ideally in a married relationship, and ready to be a parent, your likelihood of achieving the middle class, the American dream, is over 70% and your chances of being poor are under 2%. So we think that this is quite a important thing for young people to know. And in fact, the success sequence is now being used in a number of places around the country, in school systems, in state initiatives, to encourage those three behaviors so that people will be more successful. And I want to emphasize to listeners that these data that you and Ron came up with, these are based on the research that you've done. These are numbers on real people. Yes, these are numbers on real people. We get the data from the Census Bureau, and we simply look at what happens when you do these three things, when you follow the success sequence. And there now has been some additional research done by people outside of Brookings, including research with the youngest generation, to show whether the results change at all when you look at a different cohort, a different birth group. And also they're using even better data than we originally had, and it's showing very much the same thing. And do the results change if people achieve, say, two of the three or one of the three elements? Well, sort of obviously, achieving one or two is better than none, but it is achieving all three that should be the goal. And in your last book, Generation Unbound, it focused on a lot of these issues, and you've called the way that we form families the new fault line in America. What is this fault line, and what's happening to families in America today? Families are really in trouble in America. When we look at the data, we find that about 40% of all babies in America are now born outside of marriage. That compares to about 5% back in 1960. And people shouldn't think this is just a phenomenon that you find amongst the poor in the inner city. This is now a trend that has taken over most people in the country, except for college graduates. They are still getting married in pretty large numbers, 
but if you don't have a college degree, marriage is really disappearing. And the reason that matters is because two parents are going to have more income, more psychic energy, more time, and all of the research that we've done and others have done suggests that a child raised in a two-parent family is going to be more successful than one raised in a one-parent family. And not all of that is the result of being in a two-parent family because the people who end up in two-parent families tend to have other advantages like Mm -hmm. being more educated. But still, even after you adjust for all of those other things that are correlated with family structure, you find that children raised by both of their biological parents do better. That doesn't mean there aren't a lot of single parents out there who are doing a terrific job. It's just a tougher job on average than having two people involved. Let's stick with families for a moment. We're recording this and releasing this episode the week before Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you. Happy Mother's Day. Shout out to my wife. Let's talk about women in particular. What kind of policies have you been talking about that matter to women in the workforce, matter to women in family formation, matter to women in terms of childbearing as we're thinking about these questions of poverty and inequality? I think that the first thing we need to talk about is birth control being able to have a child when you're ready and not before. And the way to do that is to make sure that women have access to affordable birth control, especially the most effective kinds of birth control. And unfortunately, not too many women in America, even people here at Brookings, I have young professional colleagues who approach me in the elevator and say, oh, I didn't know what you said in your last book about birth control. But what I said is that the most effective form of birth control is called a long-acting reversible contraception. We call them LARCs for short, and they include IUDs and implants. And they are many, many times more effective than, say, condoms or the pill. And the reason for that is not because if you used normal forms of birth control very consistently and with good discipline, they wouldn't work. They do, and they're far better than nothing. It's just that we're all human. We make mistakes, and we forget to take a pill, or we don't use a condom in the heat of the moment. And so in practice, the most common forms of birth control are not nearly as effective as the long-acting forms, which are also safe, by the way, and highly recommended by all the professional groups now. And it strikes me as a way to empower women, especially young women, to be in control of their own reproductive choices. I'm so glad you put it that way because I think that's exactly right. We need to understand that 50% of pregnancy in the U.S. are unplanned, not wanted at the time they occurred by the parents themselves. So we really are talking about empowering women to achieve their own goals, their own aspirations with respect to childbearing. We're in no way suggesting that if a woman wants to have a baby, she shouldn't have one. And so in addition to making sure they have the means in the form of effective birth control, that's affordable to achieve their goals, we also need to give them the motivation. And the motivation comes from making sure that they have access to education and to jobs and to 
various kinds of social supports that's going to make it possible for them to have a decent life and a hope of becoming middle class. So let me put it this way. Right now, and this always surprises people, 40% of all families in America have a woman as their primary breadwinner the main breadwinner in the family. Now, that's partly because we have a lot of single-parent families headed by women, and they are, by definition, the primary and the only breadwinner in the family. But in addition, we have an increasing number of two-parent families where the woman is actually earning more than her husband or partner. And so when we put the two together, we have, you know, close to half of all families now where women are the primary breadwinners. Let me give you a couple of statistics, fast facts on, uh, on how hard it is to be a female breadwinner. The average woman in America, this is real data, at age 40 is earning $18 an hour. If she works full time, she'll have an income of $36,000 a year. Now suppose she has a young child and she lives in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm just taking a typical case here. Between the cost of childcare, the cost of rent, food and taxes, after paying those four things, let me go through them again because it's really critical to understand this, rent, childcare, food, and taxes, she will have less than $1,000 left to spend on everything else. So going back to what I said a minute ago about how tough it is to be a single parent, that tells you the story. It also explains why we need to provide more assistance to these kinds of families, whether in the form of childcare, in the form of some paid leave, in the form of wage subsidies, like the earned income tax credit, and other helps that they really, really need. Let's talk about childcare for a minute then. That's such an important aspect of women's lives and especially working women. What are some of the ideas that you've explored for improving access to childcare, expanding childcare opportunities for uh, women and families? Well, right now we have two programs, two major programs, the national level. One is a childcare block grant fund that goes to states, and states then are able to provide some assistance to families in the lower end of the income range. But there isn't enough money right now to serve everyone. I am pleased to be able to say that in the most recent budget bill, although it was fiscally irresponsible, it did at least have the advantage of it did bump up the money for childcare, this money that goes to states. The other thing we have is a tax credit that people can take when they file their income taxes for childcare expenses. The problem with the tax credit is it doesn't go to families that don't have much income tax liability, which means virtually everyone and about the bottom third of the income distribution. So I have proposed, along with a number of other people, that that tax credit, that childcare tax credit, be made refundable. In other words, you would get it whether or not you had enough income tax liability to offset. You talked a minute ago about the four big expenses, rent, childcare, food, and taxes, but we didn't even talk about transportation, medicine, paying utilities. A lot of those things maybe could be addressed if people had more money. You've talked about 
higher wages, but we know that wages have stagnated, especially amongst working class people for the past generation. What are some ideas to try to bump up wages of people in America? Well, that gives me a chance to mention my new book, which is called The Forgotten Americans, An Economic Agenda for a Divided Nation. It's not out yet. It's being released in September, but you can pre-order it on Amazon or elsewhere. And that book has as its theme jobs and wages. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people, when they look at the title, An Economic Agenda for a Divided Nation, they think, well, this book is going to be about growing income inequality and slow growth and the fact that whatever economic growth we've had hasn't been very broadly shared. And it is about all of those things. I have a whole chapter on economic growth and I have a whole chapter on income inequality, growing income inequality. But I argue in the book that they are not the real solutions to our problems. What people really need is jobs and decent wages. That's what they want. They don't want handouts. They want hand-ups. They want, of course, more growth. More growth would be great. But the fact is, as I argue in the book, we don't know how to produce more growth. Government doesn't produce growth. People do. And if people had more security and they felt they were being fairly rewarded for the jobs they were doing and that they had access to decent jobs, then I think we would get more economic growth and everybody would be better off. I've been doing focus groups recently with a group of forgotten Americans. These are people who don't have college degrees. All of them have household incomes under $70,000 a year. And the conversations with them were fascinating. And what they confirmed for me is that's really what people want, is better jobs and higher wages, including, by the way, child care and paid family leave and other benefits, health care benefits, clearly. So I think this book has a number of ideas about what we could do about jobs and wages. On the wage front, what we need to do is provide tax credits again that bump up people's wages. We have something called the Earned Income Tax Credit right now, which is a kind of a wage supplement for mostly people with children and mostly people who are pretty far down the income distribution. I have a proposal in my book that says, let's expand this kind of a tax credit program, this kind of a wage supplement, to people all the way up to $40,000, $50,000 a year. And I think that would help a lot. And I think it's the proper thing to do now because the less educated part of the population has been affected by trade and automation, and they're not doing well, their wages are falling, their job prospects are not great, and the people at the top are doing very well. We need to share some of that bounty with them, but conditioned on work, because again, they want jobs and wages, not handouts. Where are you doing these focus groups and what cities or towns? Uh, doing them in three cities, Syracuse, New York, mm-hmm. Greensboro, North Carolina, and St. Louis, Missouri. I wanted to get a mix of cities and a mix of different kinds of people in these groups, and I did. 
And I highly recommend that those of us who do the kind of data analysis and think tank work that we do here at Brookings get kind of a reality check by going out right. and talking to real people. And so I'm really, really glad I did that. And we'll be putting out a publication on that as well. That sounds fascinating. And I know we could talk about the book now, but we'll talk about it later. And I would love to have you back on this program when the book comes out to talk in more depth about the Forgotten Americans. Terrific. I just want to say, just for listeners, I remember one of the most fascinating Brookings events I've ever seen, and I've been at Brookings for 20 years, was one that you chaired, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. And it was about poverty programs. And you had women in poverty on the stage in the Brookings Falk Auditorium sharing their experiences. And I just, that... Kind of here are some people who are really affected by public policy, by the work that we do at Brookings. And here they are talking to you about their experiences was really profound and moving for me. Well, you're dating both of us, Fred. (laughs) (laughs) But that aside, I think that we all need to get outside of our bubbles. And we at Brookings very much need to do that. And I'm very pleased to see that that's happening more and more at Brookings these days. I know that Camille Bousset, the new leader of our Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion Initiative, is doing that, and a number of other scholars in Metro and elsewhere around Brookings are doing mm-hmm. that as well. And we have the new Middle Class Initiative. I know Camille is involved in that, Richard Reeves, Andre Perry, and many others. So it's a really fascinating time to see this public policy research and kind of research in the field happening at the same time. Yes, I'm particularly excited about the new initiative on the future of the middle class. We had our first event on that just yesterday. We had as a keynoter the former vice president, Joe Biden, and a wonderful discussion of what's happening to the middle class. And listeners, you can find the complete audio of that event on the middle class with Joe Biden on our website or actually subscribe to our events podcast. So, Bill, we've talked about family. We've talked about work. The third element of the success sequence is education. What can you say about education? I think that I'm going to hold education for my next book. (laughs) I am very enamored with the intellectual framework that the success sequence has provided for me and others. And so I have now written a book on the family called Generation Unbound. And I have a new book on work called The Forgotten Americans. And I don't know what I'm going to call the next book, but I think it has to be on education. I have a number of ideas there, including the fact that I think really what matters most in education is teachers. And we don't pay them well. We've been seeing a lot in the news recently about the low pay that teachers get. But in addition to paying them more, I do think we also need a different model of how we reward teaching. And it needs to be a more performance-based model, and we need to work harder to recruit the best people into teaching. Well, let's close out this discussion with a criticism that is sometimes lodged against the success sequence work, family education. And it goes something like this. The basic idea is that, well, if there is a formula for success to get yourself out of poverty and up the American income ladder, people can just follow this formula, then the structural aspects of poverty don't matter because anyone can just pull themselves up by their proverbial bootstraps. You just do these three things and you're gone. What do you have to say about that? I'm so glad you brought that up because that has been a controversy and I think it's a very valuable debate to be having. And it really is the debate about how much individual agency do people have versus how much are they the victims of structural conditions in the economy or in society. 
And I think it's some of both. I don't think I would ever argue that it's all one or all the other. On the one hand, I think it's a mistake to say that people don't have individual agency, that they're just passive vehicles for government programs or something like this. On the other hand, we all know that it's very hard to do the three things that are part of the success sequence. It's hard to get a good education. It's hard to work full time. And some people are not going to find a committed partner to have children with. I'm increasingly running into slightly older women, often professional women, who want to be single parents by choice. And I certainly don't want to emphasize that you have to be in a committed or much less a married relationship to have children. The emphasis should be on the choice. It should be your choice if to have children, when to have children, and with whom to have children, if anyone. And so I think that we do need to go back to the theme of empowerment to empower people to make these choices, but to make them wisely. Well, we'll leave it there, Bell. This has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to having you again to talk about The Forgotten Americans when it comes out in the fall. Terrific. You can learn more about Isabel Sawhill and her research on our website, brookings.edu, where you can also learn all about all of our other projects on the middle class, and race, and inclusion. And now, here's Metro Lens, our monthly segment on issues and policies about metropolitan America. Hi, this is Alan Baruby, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. Since the 2016 election, pundits, politicians, and policy wonks have paid increased attention to areas of America that have been, quote, left behind. They consider many of those places, particularly across the American Rust Belt, to have tipped the Electoral College to Donald Trump. And they rightly worry that the continued rise of regional inequality in our country represents a threat to our wider economy, society, and democracy. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for a little over 20 years now. It's a prosperous city and region. But like a lot of residents of Washington, D.C., I grew up in a somewhat less prosperous part of the country, central Massachusetts, just outside the city of Worcester. Worcester is the second largest city in New England, almost 200,000 people, although many people from outside the region have never heard of it, or worse, they pronounce it Worcester. But Worcester was an economic powerhouse throughout much of its early history. In the 19th century, its mills produced textiles that shipped far and wide via canals and railroads. In the early 20th century, Worcester was a major American center of machinery and wire manufacturing. In fact, my dad's first job in 1969 was at U.S. Steel, which was located just outside downtown Worcester. That year, fully 37% of Worcester County residents worked in manufacturing, well above the 25% average for the United States as a whole. Like a lot of other cities in the Northeast and Midwest, however, the next decades for Worcester were rough. In the 1980s alone, Worcester County lost one-third of its manufacturing jobs. The city's rebrand as the Paris of the 80s fell flat as it lost population, more of its housing became vacant and abandoned, and unemployment and poverty ballooned. One of its iconic urban renewal projects, the downtown Worcester Center Galleria, where I rode the futuristic glass elevator as a kid, had shuttered by the early 1990s. 
Worcester's story is familiar to a host of urban areas throughout the Northeast, Midwest, and parts of the American South. Those cities are the subject of a new report I authored with colleague Cecile Murray entitled, Renewing America's Economic Progress Through Older Industrial Cities. In it, we identify 70 urban counties nationwide that share Worcester's trajectory as significant urban centers with a history in manufacturing that have struggled over time to grow jobs in new sectors. These 70 older industrial cities range from very large cities like Baltimore and Detroit to mid-sized places like Akron and Worcester to smaller communities like Utica, New York and Terre Haute, Indiana. Not coincidentally, many of my colleagues at Brookings Metro also hail from older industrial cities, places like Bethlehem, Roanoke, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, St. Paul, and St. Louis. Together, these places represent one-eighth of America's population and economy, and even higher shares in states such as Indiana, Ohio, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. Our report highlights some of the challenges these places share. Slow to no growth, losses of technologically advanced jobs, continued suburbanization of employment, and racial and economic segregation. Collectively, older industrial cities house one-fifth of the nation's black working-class adults, many of whom are struggling to access good neighborhoods and well-paying jobs. But the report also points to a unique set of assets older industrial cities possess. Advanced research institutions, STEM-capable workers, dense job clusters, and renewed signs of demographic momentum through migration and population gains. I see this story unfolding in Worcester myself. Its higher education and advanced healthcare institutions are spinning off new jobs and demand for living in the urban core. The city raised the old Galleria to make way for a new mixed-use development that reconnects the downtown fabric. The MBTA runs regular commuter rail service now to Boston. Of course, the city still has neighborhoods and communities that aren't fully prospering, but local and state efforts are building a future for Worcester that looks much brighter than it did 30 years ago. It's that sort of potential that makes America's older industrial cities so critical to our collective future. They should be the principal sites for new state and national efforts that support bottom-up solutions for bolstering job creation, job preparation, and job access. Unleashing inclusive growth in these urban cores would, in turn, benefit a much wider set of smaller surrounding communities, many of them in so-called Trump country, that ultimately depend on the well-being of those urban areas in an increasingly urban age. Older industrial cities, in short, are the right places to forge a stronger, more inclusive, more cohesive U.S. economy that leaves fewer of our citizens and communities behind. As we'd say in Worcester, it's wicked important. You can find the new report on our website, www.brookings.edu slash metro. You can find the report, Renewing America's Economic Promise Through Older Industrial Cities by Alan Berube and Cecile Murray on our website, brookings.edu. For more Metro Lens segments, you can visit our SoundCloud channel. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, 
and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.